The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The aim is to assess the potential relative benefits in terms of cardiovascular events, uh, prevention, uh, comparing SGLT2 inhibitors and GLT1 receptor analysts. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call features an article titled Sodium Glucose Cotransporter 2 Inhibitors versus Glucagon-like Peptide 1 Receptor Agonists and the Risk for Cardiovascular Outcomes in Routine Care Patients with Diabetes Across Categories of Cardiovascular Disease. Joining us is the first author of this paper, Dr. Elisabetta Patorno. Dr. Patorno is Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and an Associate Epidemiologist in the Division of Pharmacoepidemiology and Pharmacoeconomics at Brigham and Women's Hospital. She's also the Director of the Program on Pharmacoepidemiology of Metabolic Diseases in her division and Chair of the Public Health and Epidemiology Interest Group Leadership Team at the American Diabetes Association. We hope you enjoy and learn something from this podcast. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I was fascinated by the title of your article and even more fascinated when I read it. And I think it'd be worthwhile for our listeners who are struggling with this idea of these newer uh, drugs for diabetes, and it turns out SGLT2s are not just for diabetes now, how we uh, choose between these. And I've done a number of podcasts previously on SGLT2s, but your introduction to the article about why this is an important analysis, explain that to us. Yes, of course. Uh, Thanks so much, Bob. As we know, cardiovascular disease remains a big problem in terms of uh, morbidity and mortality in patients with type 2 diabetes. And there are new data suggesting that the situation is improving, but um, these trends tend to, you know, lag in a way that we would like not to see. uh, And uh, I would say lag more compared to patients without diabetes. So it is, I would say, without uh, a big surprise that the results that came from recent uh, large placebo-controlled cardiovascular outcome trials were very welcome, I would say, by, by, by the medical community. So specifically, uh, what did these uh, trials found? So they found that basically comparing, I, I would say, SGLT2 and GLP1 to placebo, they found that both classes can actually lead to clinical important reductions in cardiovascular events and mortality in patients with uh, type 2 diabetes. So current guidelines with uh, a little bit of a lag, but uh, obviously um, ended up adopting this evidence and now recommend that uh, physicians that are treating uh, patients with type 2 diabetes consider either SGLT2 inhibitors or GLP-1 receptor agonists as glucose-lowering treatment for patients with, uh, with diabetes and atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and recommend instead SGLT2 inhibitors for patients with a history of heart failure. However, 
the current uh, currently available randomized clinical trials do not allow, they did not perform a, a direct comparisons between SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists for the prevention of cardiovascular events. And so any potential, in addition to this, any potential trial that would address such questions starting today would require several years to complete, delaying the answer that is needed at this point in time for clinicians and patients to make decisions. And so in the situations where clinicians and patients have to decide which glucose lower medication to use without uh, you know, studies and, and evidence supporting this decision-making, we aimed with our study to address this gap as much as we could. And so we conducted this uh, large population-based studies using real-world data and uh, the, with the aim to assess the potential uh, relative benefits in terms of cardiovascular events uh, prevention comparing SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists. So can you explain the study population, where you got the data and what these patients look like? Yes, of course. The study population uh, included commercially insured patients uh, from, uh, um, I would say, two large uh, commercial U.S. health insurances databases, Optum Informatics specifically in IBM MarketScan. We also included information for older adults, 65 plus, um, enrolled in Medicare fee-for-service. So these databases are very powerful for this type of analysis as they allowed us to have a very broad range of information for the patients enrolled in these uh, um, you know, insurance systems including uh, demographic information, health plan enrollment, uh, longitudinal information with respect to, uh, you know, inpatient, outpatient, uh, diagnosis procedure, and obviously pharmacy dispensing records uh, through which we identify the use of SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists. So specifically, we identified patients, so we require patients to have uh, type 2 diabetes, and we uh, selected patients that started treatment with either an SGLT2 or a GLP-1 receptor agonist between April 2013 and December 2017. April 2013 was chosen as it was consistent with the launch of the first SGLT2 inhibitors in the United States. We wanted uh, to ensure those patients were new users, and so we excluded from the analysis and from the study population all patients that had any history of these uh, two classes in the year prior to initiation. One of the things that is common on this podcast is to re-explain propensity analysis, because some of the best studies that are coming out use this concept. Could you explain that a little bit and then talk about sensitivity analyses? Because the combination of a propensity analysis and a sensitivity analysis, while not equivalent to a, a prospective randomized controlled trial, is about as close as we can get with the type of data that you had available. Yes, absolutely. So this is, you know, to remind um, people listening to the podcast, this is a non-randomized study. So we don't have the benefit of randomization. And in that regard, we, we need to try to do our best to address this uh, uh, big difference with uh, RCTs, obviously. So propensity score is one of the methodology that has been more and more used in this type of studies. Is uh, It fits, I would say, the data that we have in hands really well. And the reason is we can leverage in one score a range of very rich 
characteristics and information that we get out of our databases. So what is a propensity score? Propensity score is simply the probability, it's a probability from zero to one to be initiated in our case with one uh, an SGLT2 inhibitors compared to a GLP-1 receptor agonist. It is derived through a logistic regression model and what we did in this analysis and what is pretty standard in this type of analysis is to include in the model to estimate the propensity score as much information as possible about potential confounders or about the potential what we think to be proxies for confounders that are, might not be measured in these databases. So in this specific context, we included, for example, a very large number of covariates. I think we quantified to approximately 140 covariates pertaining to different dimensions of, of patients, including demographic information, again, geographical information, comorbidities, use of medications specifically. We tried to detail as much as we could use of previous glucose lower medication to try to get as much as possible to the severity and the stage of these patients with diabetes as these databases don't include, for example, information duration of diabetes for, for these patients. So we, you know, we try to do our best, including complications of diabetes to get to proxies that might uh, you know, let us understand what is the current situation of these patients. And then when we have estimated this number between zero and one, we use this number to match patients. So uh, we will end up matching one-to-one, -one, a patient, let's say, that starts an SGLT2 inhibitors having propensity score equal to, I don't know, 0 0.02 to another patient having exactly the same propensity score, but uh, that happened to start a GLP-1 receptor agonist. And so what this does is that it creates a perfect balance across the populations that are included in the analysis. Normally, we check the success of the propensity score match into uh, inspection of the table one that we present as, as we, we do in this, in this paper. And uh, what we look for is really nice balance between the characteristics of patients included in the analysis. Let me just stop there for a second. So of course. here's my understanding. So because of the way the propensity is done, generally balanced, race will be balanced, a history of obesity will be balanced, a history of chronic kidney disease of some type will be balanced. And so it's as if you did a randomized controlled trial. And many patients who are on an SGLT or GLP-1 don't have a matching partner, so they're, they're excluded from the analysis. So it's just the ones that you can match. That is correct. That is correct. So we make the trade-off. Uh, we uh, include in the analysis only the patient that we consider exchangeable with respect to their characteristics for right. one treatment versus the other. Excellent. And then you do sensitivity analyses. What the heck yes. is sensitivity analysis? Yes, absolutely. I think sensitivity analyses are, you know, as important as primary analysis in, in this type of studies. We want to test the robustness of our primary findings. And so we try to challenge the, 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 the results and the data as much as we can, uh, thinking about, I would say, the possible ways that something might go wrong. So what, what the analysis we conducted here um, were analysis assessing, um, in addition, obviously, to um, potential residual confounding, which I'm happy to explain uh, you know, a little bit later, but uh, we started by assessing potential exposure misclassification. 
So uh, the main analysis entailed a, I would say, exposure effect window that we applied at the end of the prescription supply of either SGLT2 inhibitors or um, GLP-1 receptor agonists to account for potential biological effect of this factor, but also imperfect adherence of patients to treatment. And so what we did in sensitivity analysis, because this might be prone to some extent to some exposure misclassification, we reduced these 90 days to 60 days to see whether that might uh, have driven some differences, obviously, in the results. We also addressed potential informative sensory. So why do patients discontinue their treatment? Some of these reasons might be associated with the outcome of interest that we want to assess in these studies. And if that is the case, that might create problems that are, you know, in jargon called informative sensory. So what we did to address this potential problem was to actually conduct, we mimic an ITT analysis, blinding ourselves to any change in treatment of these patients during the follow-up, basically following up patients from the day of initiation of one SGLT2 or GLP-1 receptor agonist throughout any available time period without thinking about discontinuation or a switch in treatment. That's wonderful. Yeah, and then, you know, we obviously uh, also included analysis for residual confounding, uh, which, um, you know, are, are fairly described. Yeah. The results are actually uh, quite eye-opening. So maybe you could go over the results and we can have, then we'll have a conversation about what does this mean now that we know all this? Yes. So uh, I think, you know, starting from what we were discussing, so we started from a very large a sample of patients that either initiated an SGLT2 or GLP-1, which it, I think it was approximately even a little bit over half a million patients. Then after applying one-to-one propensity score matching, we reduced the sample to, I think, around 370,000 patients. And among those, uh, over 100,000 patients were patients with established cardiovascular disease and uh, around 260,000 were patients um, without established cardiovascular disease. Cardiovascular disease, just as a reminder, we defined as history of either a myocardial infarction event, stroke, peripheral artery disease, or a coronary revascularization in the year prior to court entry or treatment initiation. So what did we find? We found that um, initiating an SGLT2 inhibitors or a GLP-1 receptor agonist uh, was associated with no difference in the risk of the primary outcome of hospitalization for MI or stroke in the general population. When we stratified by presence of established cardiovascular disease, we found again that the rates of MI, uh, myocardial infarction stroke were similar in patients without history of cardiovascular disease, a baseline uh, that were prescribed as GLT2 inhibitors or GLP-1 receptor agonists. Although there was a, a small decrease in risk, a 10% decrease in risk uh, among patients who initiated SGLT2 compared to GLP-1 receptor agonists that had history of established cardiovascular disease at baseline, which was mostly driven by a decrease in the risk of myocardial infarction hospitalizations. For the other primary outcome, heart failure hospitalization, we found that the initiation of SGLT2 versus GLP-1 receptor agonists was associated in the overall population with approximately, I would say, 30% decrease in the risk of hospitalization for heart failure. And this was regardless of the presence of cardiovascular disease at baseline or not. What we noticed also with respect to heart failure hospitalization is that 
the benefit was, as I would say expected, was substantially greater among patients with history of cardiovascular disease who had uh, approximately five fewer uh, events of hospitalization for heart failure per 1,000 person years compared to less than one event, fewer event among patients without cardiovascular disease at baseline. So that was, I would say, fairly expected. We also found no meaningful differences with respect to all-cause mortality in the overall population and among patients without history of cardiovascular disease, but found, again, a small decrease in risk among patients uh, who initiated STLT2 inhibitors compared to GLP-1 receptor agonists among patients with cardiovascular disease at baseline. On a previous podcast, and I think the, the general teaching has been up to this point, that if you have heart failure, SGLT2s, if you have coronary arteries, GLP1s. And as I interpret reading your study, SGLT2s are just fine for coronary artery disease. They're not significantly better than, they're not significantly worse than GLP1s. And they may have an advantage in someone who has coronary artery disease in helping stave off future problems with heart failure. So perhaps SGLT2s and someone who you think might develop, even if they don't already have heart heart disease, but if they already have heart disease, they're really valuable drugs. And seems like that's more and more what the cardiologists that I work with have a belief about. And what's been the reaction to this analysis? Uh, any any critiques? And what what are your implications in 2021? Yes. So I think based on our analysis, I would say that, and, you know, we found this, as, as you nicely summarized, that we found in two classes to be similarly effective in preventing MI stroke. We found a, uh, you know, consistent benefit, increased benefit in starting an SGLT2 versus GLP-1 with respect to heart failure. What does this tell us? I would say that um, considering this finding in aggregate, we might conclude that S32 might be likely to prevent more cardiovascular events overall compared with the GLP-1 receptor agonist. You know, this might be factor in, I think, in uh, prescribing decisions with respect to one class versus the other. Obviously, that is a discussion that will need to happen in between clinicians and patients, and there will be other factors, obviously, to consider, and that might be specific to the patients. But for sure, I, I, I imagine at this point in time, 2021, the finding might be one of the factors that might you know, be, be considered in the equation, in the, the decision-making equation for these two, uh, two classes. Right. I, I think GLP-1s have an advantage in weight loss and... There may be patients in whom you want to use GLP-1s because of weight loss. So we're not saying that SGLTs should always be the first choice over GLP-1s. But if you're most concerned about cardiovascular disease, the SGLT2s are getting more and more evidence uh, in their favor. And I, I know there are now articles on both heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and, and now a heart failure with preserved ejection fraction that SGLT2s can be beneficial. Has any, any pushback or commentaries about your article where people are concerned about anything? Yes. So we are actually working on a couple of responses to comments now. It, you know, 
couple of comments, I would say maybe the one that might be relevant for this discussion is pertaining to the individual agents that were included in the um, in the class of GLP-1 receptor agonists. As you, uh, you know, most people know uh, the results from RCTs as being some type of heterogeneous for the individual agents of GLP, but I would also say SGLT2 inhibitors, thinking about dapagliflozin or ertogliflozin more recently, I would say, with some kind of heterogeneous effects with respect to you know, uh, preventing cardiovascular events in uh, differently also described populations. So one of the aspects that were raised is, um, you know, how much this might be a class effect versus individual agent effect, which is, I think, well taken. And it's actually part of the next steps we are taking after this analysis. As, uh, you know, leveraging this type of information, we obviously have a lag between having information for I would say powered <laughs> information yeah. to assess individual agents. But in the next steps for us at this point is really try to understand whether, um, you know, in agent-specific head-to-head comparisons where we can disentangle some of the individual effects versus class effects. I'm really glad that you all are going to be looking at that uh, because we do have uh, a number of SGLT2s and we have a number of GLP-1s. And you always wonder whether whether it's class effect, and it could be class effect, but there's something about this one that is just a little bit better. And I look forward to those future studies. I can't thank you enough for joining us on this podcast. You've really explained everything uh, very nicely, and I think it's a most important study. Please thank your uh, colleagues, uh, and this is our thanks to you for publishing this article. Thank you so much, Bob, for giving this opportunity. And it was really nice to chat with you this morning. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This fascinating analysis reestablishes the supremacy of SGLT2s for heart failure patients. SGLT2s are being used widely for heart failure patients, and many recommend that almost all heart failure patients should be on an SGLT2 at this time, regardless of whether they have diabetes or not. What's interesting is that the seeming equivalence of SGLT2s and GLP1s for coronary artery disease is a surprising finding. Finally, we got into the question of whether these are class effects or whether they're individual differences amongst the SGLT2s or amongst the GLP1s. We look forward to further research on this. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast and learned a bit about these two important classes of diabetes medications. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participants' statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.